Welcome to another sermon from New Bethel Baptist Church. I hope that this sermon will help you to better know who God is, challenge you to grow in your faith, and compel you to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. As you're grabbing your Bibles, if you want to turn to the book of John chapter 4, if you have a if you're a child this morning that is in elementary age or younger and you want to go to children's church, uh, you can go ahead and go. Eliza, go ahead and go downstairs. I see you up there. Jordan's going too, so you can go with Jordan, okay? <laughs> so, all right. So we are in John chapter 4, um, and we are looking at John chapter 4. It's going to be a longer passage this morning, and we're going to break it up a little bit. So it's John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30, and then 39 through 42. Now, I want to explain this to you because I don't think typically it's good to just remove passages from parts of a passage. But if you look at this passage, I encourage you to read it later. Um, We're looking at at an encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And in this passage, Jesus encounters her. They talk from verses 1 through 30. Verse 31, the disciples come back and the woman leaves and they talk for a little bit. And then in verse 39 through 42, it goes back to talking about the impact this encounter had on the woman and on the community around them. So I want to explain to you why we're having this gap there, because it's not because I don't like those verses and I want to take them out. It just doesn't, with what we're talking about today, that would be a different part of a, probably part of a series. It would be a different sermon in itself. And so we're going to be getting there in a few moments. So we're talking about a divine encounter today. And I want you to keep in mind as we read this, what scripture is. It's, an, it's a retelling and an account of real interactions between Jesus and, and in this case, the woman at the well. Now, one thing about the Bible that's a little different from other books that, that we might read today that are written um, today is a lot of times there's not descriptive language that's given to describe how these interactions went. And so I know for myself in particular, when I would read these things, especially as I was younger, I always gave it a very somber reading to everything that was said. It was very urgent, very somber, and very impactful. Because we think about church, a lot of times, the sermons and the, the times when we read, it's a very serious time, right? We're not, we're not talking, we're not joking, there's not sarcasm maybe usually in, in sermons or in, in, in Sunday school lessons. But I think in this, this passage, I think there's some sarcasm. And I think there's some things that are happening. Now, to be fair, this is my interpretation of how it reads, but there's a lot of things said here. I want you to think about how it's said in addition to what is said. Because we all know that sometimes in life, it's not exactly what you say, but it's how you say it, right? Like when, if you're a parent and you ask your child, go clean your room, and they say, all right, there might be a little bit of a conversation there. And they're like, what? I said all right. Well, it's not what you said. It's how you said it. Or if your wife were to ask you, do I look good in this dress? And you say, yeah. She's probably going to go change, even though you said yeah. Because it's not what you said. It's how you said it. And so we, have to keep, we know how that applies and how that works in our everyday life. But when we think about this passage, I want you to remember that as we look at this interaction. So John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30, and then 39 through 42. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptized more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. 
And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sakar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whatever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I get will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, this time that we can look at your word. And God, I pray that as we look at this passage, that you will help us to see who you are. Will you help us to see what we can learn from this encounter between Jesus and the, the woman at the well? God, I pray that you'll be with us, that you'll just let us be willing this morning to encounter you, Lord, and to, to see what your word says to us and to be changed by it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we begin to talk through this encounter, I think it's a very good display and, and prototype for what an encounter with Jesus has to entail. 
and for salvation to occur, there are three things. I want you to remember E-C-T. That's just three letters that I've picked. There's other ways you could say these things, I'm sure. But E-C-T, those are the first three letters. If you can remember that in your mind as you go through this, we see the essential marks of what salvation looks like as we look through what this is and as we think about this idea of come and see. So the first thing we see, the E is encountering Christ. The E is encountering Christ. So we see that Jesus comes to the well. He's wearied from his journey, and this woman comes at the sixth hour to draw water. Now, I I considered showing a a couple of videos to to show this description, because like I said, I don't think that if you're just reading it blankly and plainly, that you're getting the full meaning of the text. I don't think that if you try to understand that when the woman says, give me this water so I won't be thirsty anymore, I think she's kind of mocking Jesus. She's mocking, you don't even have a thing to draw water, you're going to give me living water, I won't ever be thirsty again. That sounds wonderful. Give it to me. But there's two examples you can find really easily on YouTube, or if you've watched The Chosen, they, they show this in one of the episodes where Jesus, you can, if you look up Jesus and the woman at the well on YouTube, you can find two videos. One of them is from The Chosen, and that's a, a TV show that shows the life of Jesus. It's really well done, really well produced. It takes a little more liberty with the passage. There's a little bit more to the conversation that potentially there was that the Bible doesn't record, but there's a little more liberty with it. The other one is using the King James Version word for word what the interaction is, but it's acted out. And you can see the, the, the sarcasm and the mocking, and then you can see the transformation when she says, go bring your husband. But when we think about this, when we think about this encounter with Christ, we see her meeting Jesus at the well. One thing that the, the, the chosen example talks about is how the Bible says that she comes at the sixth hour. And they, they elaborate on that a little bit more to say that this woman's coming at the sixth hour because she's an outcast. That it was probably the tradition of many of the people, of many of the women to come in the morning together to be safer, to be in a group, to come and draw water together. But this woman who's had five husbands and the one she's with now isn't her husband probably wasn't received very well among some of the people in her own town. So here she comes alone the sixth hour to draw water and she meets Jesus this is where we have to understand that everyday interactions can be life-changing when God is involved you see this morning you came here on a Sunday morning to come to church and I don't know your reason here's the deal I don't know your reason I know growing up sometimes when I went to church you know why I went because my parents took me to church and sometimes when you go to church you know why you go because you feel obligated you feel like it's what you're supposed to do And I hope that you came here today because you want to worship God and hear from His Word. But the reality is, maybe you came, it's just another Sunday. Everyday interactions can be life-changing when God is involved. I know when I went to camp and was called to ministry, I didn't go to camp to encounter God. I went to camp to have fun with my friends. And so no matter where you are, whether today seems like an everyday, whether tomorrow at the grocery store, wherever it might be, life-changing encounters can happen when God is is involved. I'm sure that this woman had gone to the well many, many times. But on this day, she encountered Jesus. So they have a conversation. This is a rare interaction because Jews don't associate with Samaritans. So there's a couple things here. First, Jesus is talking to a woman. Jesus, a single man, a, a devout man, talking to a woman who was alone without her husband. This is not something at that time that was very commonplace. because We know this because when his disciples come back, what, what is their reaction? 
they're a little shocked that he's talking to a woman. But not just that, he, she's talking to, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Now, why was this such a big deal? Because when you think about Samaritans, I asked the youth this this morning, what, what do you think about? The good Samaritan. And so I think in our modern context, Samaritan equals good. But in that context, Samaritan did not equal good. And that was the whole reason that Jesus used a Samaritan in that parable. Why didn't the Jews and the Samaritans get along? Well, during the exile period of the Old Testament, where the, a lot of the Israelites are taken from their homeland into the captivity, think about Daniel, the Babylonian captivity, how they're removed from their home. And then we know about Nehemiah, we've talked about that, where they go back and rebuild Jerusalem. There's that period of time where they're out of Israel, where it has been captive. Well, you know who moves in? A lot of foreign people, a lot of people with false gods, a lot of people who were not Israelite at all. And so the people that remained ended up intermarrying with and following false gods and mixing that with their former Israelite Jewish belief system. And those people are the Samaritans, those that did not leave during the exile, that did not remain faithful to God, intermarried with foreign people. Not that the, their, not that the foreign people was the problem, it was their religion that they brought with them. And they mixed that in, built a new temple, and set up a new high priest, and essentially created a sect or offshoot of the Jewish faith. And so when people come back and they're rebuilding the temple in Nehemiah, the people that opposed them, and we talked about that on Wednesday night too long ago, how the people were coming against them to undo what they're doing. And who those people were, some of them? Samaritans. So there was a deep long-standing disagreement. And so then there's the temple in Jerusalem. There's the temple that the Samaritans have set up, and they argue about where we should worship God. So that's why they don't get along. But Jesus is here, as we talked about, to tear down walls, to tear down barriers. Because what happens is, is there's this encounter that he has. And this is where we see Jesus is showing who is going to be brought into the fold of God. The Jews only, only the devout Jews know. The sinners among the Jews. Only the sinners among the Jews know the Samaritans, those who have been long away from God. Only the Samaritans know, as we see in the Gospels, in the Acts following, the Gentiles. All who believe will be grafted in through Jesus. And we see that starting with this encounter. And she's confronted here with an internal with, by an eternal reality. Because she asks for this water, and he's like, well, why would you ask me? I'm a Samaritan woman, is what she says. Jesus explains that if she knew who he was, she would be asking him for water. Because he has living water. And she laughs him off. How are you going to draw any water? You don't have anything to draw water with. The well is deep. And he tells her that all who drink this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks his water will never be thirsty again. When I think about that, when I hear that, it makes me think about what I've always been told about salt water. I've never drank salt water, at least not intentionally. Anybody that's been in the ocean at all has unintentionally drank in salt water. It doesn't taste good, but when you're little, at some point, everybody has this question, how can you be thirsty when you're lost at sea, right? There's water everywhere. And you quickly get told you can't drink salt water because if you drink it, it's going to make you more thirsty and eventually you're going to completely dehydrate yourself. It's better to not drink anything at all. 
And that's what I, it comes to my mind when Jesus is thinking about this. You're going to drink this water, and guess what you're going to be by the end of the day? You're going to be thirsty. And guess what you're going to be tomorrow? You're going to be thirsty. But whoever drinks the water I give won't ever be thirsty again. It also makes me think of Psalm 42, 1 through 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? No matter what we seek after, no matter what we seek to satisfy our thirst and our hunger with, and that's the part where we left, where we skipped, where Jesus talks to the disciples about food. Now he has food they don't know about. Like, well, what food does he have? It's the same kind of thing. You hunger and you thirst. The only thing that can satisfy your soul is God. We see a perfect example of that in this passage. We see a woman who's been married five times and is with someone who's not even her husband. She's looking for satisfaction and is not finding it. No matter where you look in this world, if you look at your spouse, if you look at your children, your job, money, whatever it may be, it will not satisfy you. Oftentimes, some of the people who are most discontent in life are the people who have the most things. Because they chase and they chase and they see and they get, and there's still something missing. That next amount of money that they thought they'd be happy with didn't satisfy them. That house that they thought would be the, the last thing that they needed didn't satisfy them. That relationship that they finally got didn't satisfy them. How many people have destroyed, how many men in particular have destroyed their family after many years because they thought that they needed someone else, someone new or someone younger, and that would satisfy them. And then it doesn't. Why? Only God can satisfy the living water that, that God gives is what will satisfy. And he says that this living water will become within him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So what does this show us? This living water he's talking about is, is salvation. This eternal life through salvation that, that quenches our thirst. This relationship with God that is only available through Jesus. So he gives this salvation, this living water, but what do we see about that living water? What do we see about salvation all throughout Scripture? Is that this initial thing that God does, the giving of salvation, the giving of the living water, produces more. It will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so Jesus imputes his righteousness, gives us his righteousness in salvation. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be called the righteousness of God. But this righteousness that he bestows upon us becomes an abundance of righteousness welling up within our life that becomes apparent to all people to see. What do we know about wells also? It becomes a source for other people as well. Because then we have this living water that's been given to us by God, and we go and we share that with other people. We say, look at what God has done in me. He will do this in you. So there is a fruit Right? This is another illustration. Living water welling up to eternal life is like the seed planted that bears fruit. It's the same idea in both scenarios. Seed planted, it grows, it bears fruit. The, well, the, the, the water that's given by Christ that wells up to eternal life. So she asks him for this living water so she doesn't have to come here to draw water anymore. She's missing it still. She's mocking Jesus, saying, give me this water so I don't have to be thirsty anymore. So I don't have to come here to draw water anymore. That sounds awfully nice. And so what, what happens next 
is the next thing we see. She's encountered Christ, and she doesn't know she's encountered Christ yet. Just like oftentimes when we encounter God, we don't know what he's doing or what's happening until it culminates by being confronted by Christ. So EC, she's confronted by Christ. Give me this water so I, might ha- I don't have to come here anymore. What's he say? The one thing she probably didn't want to hear. Go get your husband and come back. And you know, in, in the, the, the chosen example of that, it seems very benign. Hey, go get your husband, come back, and I'll give it to both of you. But through that one statement, cuts right to the heart of the issue she has in her life. Well, I don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five, and the man you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. And so in doing so, he displays to this woman that he knows her better than anyone else does. He knows the depths of her heart. He knows the depths of her sin. And he's still interacting with her. I want you to think about that. If you were in this interaction, if you were in this place, what is the one sentence you would not want to hear Jesus say? What is the one thing that would, that would show that he knows the depths of what he saved you from? That knowledge of you that maybe no one else knows about. He confronts her sinful living. And here's what we need to understand. There is a major movement of people, especially online. This is very important. If you have children or grandchildren, please be very aware of what they interact with online. Because you will encounter all sorts of terrible things that are outright terrible, but then you'll also encounter things that are what the Bible calls wolves in sheep's clothing. People who will claim to be speaking on behalf of Christ and say, Jesus doesn't care about people's sin. Jesus wants us to love people. He doesn't want us to call out sin in people's life. What do you think Jesus was doing here? Do you think he thought she would feel good about the fact that she's had five husbands and is living with someone that's not her husband? Do you think that was going to make her feel happy and and, and it was all peace, love, and happiness in the situation? No, he is confronting the sin in her life. Not to shame her, not to make her hate herself or feel shame or reproach, but so that he can show her what he, is, what he came to do, what he's there for, to save us from our sin. And so when we call out sin in the lives of people, it is not to shame them or to, to belittle them, but it is to show them why they need saving. Because we've talked about already, there are many people, the majority of people in this nation, if you ask them, how do you go to heaven? They believe they'll go to heaven if they're a good person. Do you know how you convince those people that they're not going to go to heaven because they're a good person? You reveal to them the depths of their sin in their life through the Bible, not our judgment, not our place of high superiority, but what God has said, what his standard is that people cannot keep, that I can't keep, that you can't keep, that no one has kept other than Jesus. And it's Jesus who confronts the sin. And, and when, so people, when they encounter Jesus, they have to be confronted by Jesus, by the sin they have in their life. There is no person that can encounter Jesus and say, yeah, this sounds great, Jesus is the Son of God. I don't have to do anything differently now. She's confronted by Jesus. It can never be said that Jesus didn't care about sin and about righteousness because that's precisely why he came. Because people had sin and couldn't be righteous, he came so that they might have relationship with God. And so she perceives him to be a prophet. 
Sir, I see that you're a prophet. So everything switches here now. He knows things he should know. Things are different. And what does she do? I perceive you're a prophet. The, the, the Samaritans say we should worship here. The Jews say in Jerusalem, who's right? So her first thing that she does is talk about a question that's a religious disagreement that's been going on for years. And what we see that Jesus does in the situation is that he cuts through what I want to call religiosity. Okay? Religiosity. This is the idea of a facade of faith in God. Because that sounds like a very profound question. Oh, you are a, a prophet from God. Who is right? The people who worship here or the people who worship there? What is the answer to this question? Now, there is an answer to the question. He says the answer to the question. You worship what you don't know. We, sh- we worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. He says right there, listen, you guys got it wrong. You're going the wrong direction. But he doesn't make that the crux of what they're talking about. He refuses to let her sidetrack that. I'll tell you one of the most interesting things about being a pastor is when I meet people and I interact with people in regular life and I talk to them, especially someone I don't know, and then at some point in the conversation it gets brought up, after, especially when it's been a long time before this gets brought up, that I'm a pastor. Do you almost, all, every time you almost the first thing they say, oh, well, yeah, I used to go to church, yeah, I, I try to pray, try to be a good person. Um, I read the Bible every once in a while. It's like they're trying to just prove their religiosity to me. I don't need them to prove anything to me. I don't need them to show anything to me. It's not about me. It's about, do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with God? That's what she gets back to. That's what Jesus gets back to in this situation. Because he talks about how people will worship in spirit and in truth. Because let's, let's look at that. There are these people arguing about where they should worship. Do we worship on this mountain? Do we worship in Jerusalem? There's a right answer. The Jews are right. Everything that the Jews are doing is more in line with what God is calling them to do. So the Samaritans are wrong. And so it's wrong to be wrong and live in wrongness. I hope, does that make sense? It's wrong to be wrong and live in wrongness. Someone shows you, hey, you're doing the wrong thing. It's not going to go well if you do that and you do it. It's not going to work very well. It, you know, the, I had to replace a hot water heater. I, I made sure I had some good help with me. And if I had decided to start unhooking the gas line without turning off the gas and someone said, you don't want to do that, and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway, guess what's going to happen? Something really bad. It's wrong to be wrong and live in your wrongness. When someone shows you the error of your ways, you need to correct because of that. But it's also wrong to be right in the wrong way. It's wrong to be right in the wrong way. And how do we see that? The parable of the Good Samaritan. The Jews are where salvation is coming from. They are the ones who are God's chosen people. They're the ones where the Messiah comes through. But we see the people who pass by the man, their kinsmen, laying left for dead, that they pass by on the other side. They have the right religion. They have the right knowledge of who God is, but they don't apply it in the right way. What we see here is that they they didn't do that with the Samaritans correctly. Rather than trying to bring them back into the fold of God and to show them to repent of their wrongness, they cast them out and didn't associate with them. So we see how they are right in their understanding and knowledge, but it didn't get to their hearts. That's what Jesus is breaking down. It's not about, he says that there will become a time, and the time is here now, when the true worshipers won't worship here or in Jerusalem, but will worship in spirit and in truth. 
the spirit, the spirit that God gives us and the truth of who God is, is being right about what you're worshiping and how you're worshiping, but also being right about how you do it. Having a correct understanding of who God is and a correct application and living out of how we approach it. Because you can have a correct understanding and go about it the wrong way. There are people that in the name of Christ do terrible things. They might have good doctrine on paper, but they apply it in a sinful way. They worship in truth, but not in spirit. Because the spirit, what does the Bible say? If you live by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so if you have truth, but you don't follow the spirit, that truth is going to be distorted by your flesh. So we worship in spirit and in truth. So the woman's response to this statement is, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I who speak to you am he. I want you to not misunderstand how radical of an interaction this is and how big of a statement this is by Christ. Again, we said Jesus, the Messiah, is speaking first to a woman. At this culture, in this time, this was a big departure. Like he said, the, the disciples were kind of shocked he was speaking to a woman when they came back. Not just a woman speaking to a woman who is a Samaritan. So they didn't, Jews did not associate with Samaritans. This is a big departure again from traditional things that happened at that time. The third thing, the disciples didn't even know this, not just speaking to that a, a Samaritan woman, but a Samaritan woman with a lot of public sin in her life. And it is this person that Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah to. He says, I am the Messiah. I am the one that you're talking about. I am the one that you've waited for. And if you think about the context of the passage at all, it's, it's beautiful to see that the, the vast um, display of God's goodness here. Who does he talk to in John chapter 3? He talks to Nicodemus, a Pharisee who comes to him by night because he's ashamed to talk to him. But he talks to a Pharisee, a keeper of the law. And in the next chapter, he talks to a Samaritan woman with an abundance of public sin in her life. And both people he talks to about what it means to know God and to follow God. And so from this interaction, she leaves transformed by Christ. Transformed by Christ. We see we have to encounter Christ. We have to be confronted by Christ. We have to be transformed by Christ. She leaves this encounter and goes to tell people about what has happened. Come and see the man who has told me everything I have ever done. This is this whole idea of, that we've been talking about, about come and see. Last week it was about Philip and Nathaniel. Come and see, I found the Messiah. This week, come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. And it says, many believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So she goes and she says, this is the encounter I had. And what does it say in the Bible? People believed in him because of her testimony. I want you to understand that your testimony, your story of how you encountered God, how you were confronted by God, and how you were transformed by God has tremendous impact and can lead people to have an understanding of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Son of God. Your testimony. God can use you to lead people to him. He can use you to lead people to knowledge of who he is. Your testimony can help them to encounter him, to 
be confronted by him and to be transformed by him. But not just that. She didn't just say, here's my testimony. Believe me at my word. She said, come and see. Come and see the one who told me these things. And it says, many more believed because of his word. And they said here, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I want you to understand that, that in your life, you are called to go and share your testimony. You are called to go and tell people about what Jesus has done in your life. This is what we've been talking about all year with gospel conversations and who, you're one, who is your one, who is one person you want to reach for Christ. Who are, how many times can you have gospel conversations? A gospel conversation is where you tell people about what Jesus has done for you. Your testimony, your story. But not only that, we don't just ask them to take us at our word. We ask them to come and see who Jesus is. And that's what the challenge has been for this season is that you ask people, come and see my Savior. Come and see. Come this Easter and see Jesus. Because this Easter sermon is going to be focused completely on who Jesus is. And so we ask them to come and see. And, and we ask them in our lives to come and see what Jesus has done. See the evidence of his work in my life. Because if we have encountered Christ and we've been confronted by Christ, we should be transformed by him. And we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Here's what I want you to understand about this woman at the well. She came into this encounter a woman of reproach, a person that people didn't want to talk to, that people cast off, that she was a social outcast and probably pretty upset with the way her life had gone in her own right. And she encounters Jesus, she's confronted with her sin, and she's transformed and is now a new creation, not regarded by the flesh any longer, but regarded by what Christ would do for her. She's a new creation in Christ. And so when we encounter Christ and we're confronted by him, we should be transformed. The old, everything we brought into that is no more. We, have to, we walk away from that and we are now in relationship with Christ. And we're transformed by it. I use this, and I want to use it with you because it's going to, sometimes I think the most blatant things help make it clear. I asked the youth this morning what their favorite food was, and they both agreed, mac and cheese. I like mac and cheese as well. Now, I want to, as I said, I want you to imagine that I gave you some mac and cheese, but I told you that those aren't bacon bits. That's crumbled up cockroaches and some other, I used expired milk to cook it. Do you still want it? If you believe me, you better not eat it. You better put that spoon down or fork down. I'm a spoon and mac and cheese person, but you better put it down and walk away. Now, if you don't believe me, go ahead. Maybe I'm joking, right? Maybe I'm not being serious. But if you believe me, you better not eat it. When we talk about what the gospel says, this is very clear. This should be very clear to us that the, the gospel says you are walking in a direction of your own flesh, of your own works. You are headed straight to hell. 
to punishment because of your sin. Just like everyone else, you're not worse than people. You're the same. You're headed toward hell. But an encounter with Christ stops you and says you need to go the other way. You need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent and turn and follow God instead. How foolish would it be for us to say, I believe that's true, but I'm going to keep on going. I'm going to keep going right ahead. Too many people live their life that way. Where they might say they believe in God. They believe they have faith in who Jesus is, but it doesn't impact their life. They haven't trusted Christ as their Savior. They haven't responded to what he's done for them. They, maybe they encountered him. They were confronted by him, but they weren't transformed by him. We go back to John chapter 3, just right before this. To see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. What does that mean? That when you encounter God and you're confronted by him, you have to be transformed. And I want to challenge you that all three of these things have to be present for someone to be a believer. You can be confronted and transformed in your life. You go to the doctor and they say, listen, your health is not very good. You need to make some changes. And you do it, you can be transformed. Your life can be a little better. That's not the kind of transformation we're talking about. And there's people that would preach a false gospel that takes some of these things away. There's universalism where the encounter in Christ isn't important, that you can, just, you can just change your life and live however you want, and it's all the same path. Or maybe you encounter, but you're not confronted. You encounter Jesus, you're confronted with your sin, and you're transformed by believing in what he has done for you, by believing he is the Son of God, repenting and following him with your life by placing your faith in him. And so what I want to challenge you to do today as we come to this time of invitation is have you done those things in your life? Can you remember the time where you encountered Christ, where you were confronted with your sin? You realized I'm a sinner and I need salvation and your life has been transformed by Jesus, that you've been born again. If you have experienced that in your life, are you walking that way? Are you walking as a person transformed? Is there that evidence in your life? Are you a person that has the living water that is welling up to eternal life, overflowing and impacting the people around you? Are you asking people to come and see the one who did that, who saved you, who transformed your life? Again, I want to challenge you to be praying for encounters, ways that you can help people to encounter Jesus in your life, where you can be a person who goes and tells about what Jesus has done. Be praying that we will be able to ask people to come and see who Jesus is. That through our Easter egg hunt next week, through Easter Sunday and beyond, we can tell people the goodness of what God has done in our lives and what he will do in their lives. That we can see people come to salvation. Wherever you are this morning, whether you need to be more faithful in your life or whether you need to trust him for the first time today, respond to God appropriately in your life however he's leading you. The altar is open if you feel the need to pray. I'll be down front for prayer to answer any questions. But move as God leads you in your life this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that today will be a day where we have encountered you in our lives. It is a day where we have been confronted by you And I pray that we will leave this place transformed to follow you more faithfully. Lord, I pray that if anybody does not know you, has not made that decision to trust you for the first time, 
that today would be the day they would do so. Lord, I pray that if, if there's places in our life where we aren't following you as we should, that we would repent of those things and follow you faithfully. God, wherever you are working in each of our hearts, I pray that we would be able to respond to what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this sermon has been a blessing to you today. If you have any questions about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you through our church Facebook page, email, or by calling the church office.